Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. This is, a, this is one of those new songs I was telling you about. This is a, it's about a guy who's driving himself crazy over a woman. And the woman's name is uh, Lena. This is called All for Lena. By the end of the 1970s, Billy Joel had found success with a formula that blended elements of pop, rock, and jazz around a singer-songwriter frame. And he was about to turn all of that on its side. The Live in Houston 1979 bootleg is proof of it. The video features Billy and the Lords of 52nd Street at the Summit in Houston, Texas on November 25th. Their sound has been streamlined since the frenetic free-for-all on 1977's CW Post radio broadcast. But they're not quite as settled into the arena stage show they'll have perfected by 1982's Live from Long Island. Instead, this concert presents a top-tier rock and roll band at the top of their game with an audience of thousands cheering them on. But for as revelatory as this concert is, it's shrouded in a bit of mystery. The show took place well after the 52nd Street tour ended. It was professionally shot and edited, but never officially released. As a result, the only video footage available is grainy and suffers from generation loss. Finally, the show features three songs from the forthcoming Glass Houses. That album would mark a stylistic shift, and Billy even mentions that producer Phil Ramone is in the audience. But it's easy enough to put those lingering questions about the how and the why to the side and just enjoy the show. And that's what we're doing with this episode. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel, Houston, 1979. Billy Joel, Houston, 1979 is an odd bootleg. Everybody's seen it, I think. It's on YouTube in a few different versions. You can find either the entire thing in one long video, and I've also seen it cut up. It's pro shot, and yet there's almost no information about it out there. I believe this bootleg originated as a VHS tape, and this is one of those situations where it's like fifth generation, so the video quality is not good. The audio quality, however, has held up quite well. Now, Michael was good enough to reach out to Liberty and ask if he had any recollection of it. We only got a small response from him regarding it, and that leads me to a theory about this one. But I want to get into that later, because let's read some fan mail. I'm, I'm very happy to see that our recent cajoling has resulted in more people emailing us. Maybe it was us, maybe it wasn't, but hey, I just like to think we're persuasive. This first email is from Stan Darr. Subject is, love you guys. He writes, after three weeks of binge listening, I'm all caught up. Been a Billy fan since the early 80s, but I didn't attend my first concert until the nosebleed section at Madison Square Garden for an innocent man. I have since been to the Bridge Concert, Stormfront Tour several times, Elton, and the 2006 Tour. 
I saw the bridge at the Sportatorium in Fort Lauderdale. It was an old cow palace way out west, just about in the Everglades. I have saved the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel newspaper where Billy is quoted as, Come on, you're Miami, a big city. How come you have a venue like this? Hey, don't take it personally, guys, but this place is a dump. My favorite episodes of yours are the ones around the live concerts. CW Post, Shea, Long Island, Boston. I also really like your roundtable discussion. So, I'm an old guy who still enjoys reading the printed page. My first 45 years of life were during the Cold War, and I lived through and served during Vietnam. So, therefore, I would say my two favorite songs are Leningrad and Goodnight Saigon. I'm scheduled to teach two sessions in class on Billy Joel in June at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at North Carolina State University. I had it all prepared, but now after each of your episodes, I made a slight change with a piece of information that I didn't know before listening to you. Keep up the great work. Stan. Well, Stan, thank you so much. This is a great email. I love that Billy quote, and I think that really fits the episode that we're doing today as well, because <laughs> there's, a, there's a moment yeah. in there as well. And how fitting that his favorite episodes tend to be the live concerts and bootlegs that we cover. And here we are digging back into 79 for another one that his emails featured on as well. Thank you for your service. I had the opportunity to speak at length a few times with a friend of my father's who was in Vietnam and, and wrote a lot about it. And I had gone through a couple chapters of a book he was writing and that shit was crazy man <laughs> i mean and he didn't even get into wild stuff just the thought of it is really something else and i think really something that even with all the wars we've had now i just i would imagine it's not the same it's not to diminish anything that's going on now but i think it's right. a, a completely different situation and so it's touching then to see that that you know good night saigon actually does resonate, you know, with a vet that was that was in that war. And I'm interested to know what you're talking about at the Lifelong Learning Institute. Get back to us. Let us know what's on that syllabus. I'm really curious. I'm curious as well what the piece of information is that you came away with that helped you rethink things a little bit. That's very cool. You know, we, we take for granted a lot of the research that we do, but it's always exciting when you all come away with something new as well. So uh, I love that. Next one's from Paul Thibodeau. He says, hi, guys. I'm a big Billy Joel fan. My sisters were teenagers when The Stranger came out. I was four at the time. My sister was having her confirmation that year, and all the girls in her class were crazy about Only the Good Die Young because it mentioned confirmation. I continued to love Billy for years. I finally got to see him in my hometown in New Orleans in spring of 94 at the Superdome. My cousin and I waited at the Ticketmaster for two hours to get seats. They cut the dome in half. When Billy sang Scenes from an Italian Restaurant mentioned New Orleans, the crowd went wild. He said he'd come to New Orleans more often if it had an arena. Five years later, New Orleans finally had an arena, now called Smoothie King Center. Billy was one of the first artists to perform there. He said, wow, you guys finally got your arena. It was an electric night. Thanks for rekindling all those great childhood memories of listening to my sisters play Billy's music all of the time. Thanks. Thanks so much, Paul. You know how funny that the, his sister and her friends were laughing just because it mentioned confirmation. Clearly, it didn't catch on to what that song was really about. Or maybe they did. <laughs> that is very true. I'm curious then to see to know if this was a Catholic school or just a public school and they were all in CCD. 
you know, and if the nuns right. were going crazy over this. Um, and that's two in a row where Billy's making smart-ass comments <laughs> from the stage. I remember the very first time I saw him was at the basketball arena in uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan, which yeah. has been torn down since. I specifically remember Billy making a comment about the sweets. Just, he's like, yeah, you know, you've probably been to a basketball game there and it's probably great for a game, but it sucks for rock and roll. Basically saying, <laughs> all you people with these nice sweets, you guys... <laughs> <laughs> have crappy seats. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm I'm spoiled. I've only ever seen him in Philly and New York. So not only did we have proper venues, but he loved those towns anyway. So we were blessed. <laughs> you know, with Paul mentioning here the Superdome in New Orleans, we had a venue in Michigan, the Pontiac Silverdome, which is where the Detroit Lions played. Similar, an 80,000 seat domed football stadium. And it sounded terrible. I've only been to two shows there, I think. Uh, Metallica and Billy and Elton in 94. Mm-hmm. And... Those were two amazing concerts, but yeah, they did not sound great. And this is another thing that has become a pet peeve of mine over the years. Awful corporate sponsored names of venues. I get it because it's big money and big advertising for these companies. So I understand the business reasons why they do it, but I'm sorry. I hate the thought of going to a concert at the KFC Yum Center. Oh yeah. We had, what do they call it? It was the E Center in Camden, which was the entertainment center. And then it was the Tweeter Center, mm-hmm. so we called it the T-Center. And it's since mm-hmm. changed names all these times, and I lost track. And then it was, oh, Dead & Company are playing at the BB&T Pavilion. I'm like, the Pavilion? I'm like, what the hell? Are they playing in a gazebo? Like, what the hell is the, the Pavilion? And I'm, I had to look it up. I'm like, right. oh, it's that place. It's like on its eighth name, yeah. So this Houston 1979 show was recorded November 25th, 1979 in Houston, Texas at the Summit. Now, what's interesting is it was recorded 13 months after 52nd Street was released and four months before Glass Houses was released. All right, so let's dig into Houston here. This is how I'm looking at this one. In the pantheon of Billy Joel live albums, and we're not counting songs in the attic, you have CW Post in 1977. You have Live from Long Island in 1982. This puts this one sort of right in the middle. And if you figure it, you know, CW Post was the hungry band right before the blockbuster Stranger came out. Live from Long Island is after Nylon Curtain, so he's well established by then. So this one really shows you the ascension because this is right after, it's not right after, this is significantly after 52nd Street. So he's now mm-hmm. had his breakthrough and his very, very successful follow-up album. But he already has the big stage and he already has a lot of the elements that you see in Live from Long Island. But in Interestingly, this is the one with the core lords of 52nd Street Band and nothing else. There's no Dave LeBolt. No Howie Emerson is, is no longer in the band. This is the band that went in and then recorded Glass Houses. Yeah, and what's fascinating is this feels like the first time that he was filling arenas outside of the Northeast. Certainly he graduated to arenas in New York and whatnot mm-hmm. before anywhere else because... He did so well there. The Stranger was that big transition from the theaters to small coliseums. 52nd Street on is when it exploded and there was no looking back. You're right. It is an interesting juxtaposition to see still kind of the hunger of the band and the hunger of Billy still trying to figure out how to work these big rooms. But then you still see elements of what we would see five years later in Live from Long Island already formulating here on stage in 1979. There are some dance moves that seem embryonic when you watch them in Houston and then see them fully developed on Live from Long Island. I very much enjoyed Richie Cannata especially because you saw him play 
just about everything here. And you also saw Billy really scramble to get places. Live from Long Island, he's got the CP80, he's got the Baby Grand. This time around, though, he's got those, but he's in some parts running to get from one place to the other. I feel like it's one of two things. It was either it was a stage not totally familiar to him yet, so he didn't have a good relationship of the proximity of things. Or maybe he did it for a little bit of an effect of like, you know, I'm going to just dart around the stage just to create some movement. When we get to it, Zanzibar is the high watermark when it comes to running around. We'll get into this set list shortly, but there are three songs in this concert that would go on to be on Glass Houses, which would come out about six months later. I reached out to the band about about this show in particular and this run of shows that surrounded this date asking kind of what the purpose was behind it because it's not really tied to the 52nd street tour by all intents and purposes that had wrapped up but glass houses was four to five months away so what was the purpose of all of this and it's worth noting that phil ramon was in the house for this concert so that's another layer of speculating so i reached out to liberty and asked him about what was behind all of this and he mentioned that this was a way for them to audition these three songs and he really didn't elaborate further than that and so that got me thinking you know audition in what way because there are no outtakes from glass houses right what we saw was what we got as far as anyone knows there's no elvis presley boulevard right there's no songs that didn't make the album as far as auditioning the songs i wonder if it's one of two things they were starting to work on the record and they wanted to get out and see how this felt live and really seeing if these songs were going to work Or were they still early enough in the recording process that they wanted to go out, play a couple of new songs to see if they were going to record them in the first place? What I noticed in the concert that points to that being the case is that we get a lot of alternate solos out of David Brown. And we'll point them out, but there are times where it's either David Brown taking a guitar solo where there is no guitar solo on the album, or the guitar solo he takes is remarkably different Obviously not as composed. I mean, I think we all know by now, you can tell when a guitar player is improvising and just playing a solo in concert versus yeah. when they've really thought something out and composed a good 8 or 16 bar melody or, or idea. The solos are great. They're a lot of fun, but they're clearly not album-ready solos. And that's part of the charm of this, too. Oh, yeah. One of the songs, which we'll get into, became a huge hit. And they're early enough in these songs' lives where they didn't have to stick to the version everyone knows. Mm -hmm. So they could stretch a little bit and just kind of experiment and do what they wanted to do with a little more leeway than they would have just a year later. So I want to make one more sort of comparison to Live from Long Island, and then let's dive right into the songs here. Houston 79 has 18 songs on it. Live from Long Island has 19. They share seven songs in common. Just worth noting, I think. In counting the 18, we are going to count the Mexican Connection, which is pre-recorded, and I guess it's what they walk out to. This is what he was doing back then. You know, now they come out to the theme from The Natural. That's been his intro music probably, I think, since Stormfront, I want to say, because he did Rhapsody in Blue back in the 80s, in the uh, late 70s here. The Mexican Connection was the song right before they went on stage. Interesting choice. It doesn't quite get one amped up. And although it doesn't get you amped up, the opener here really does. This concert begins with Only the Good Die Young, which I'm going to say is an anomaly for him because we almost always see this song late in the set. By the 80s, it was 
buried in the bottom 20% of the show, typically. It just moves, and you know, when, when Billy does that party block of songs, this is in there. It does not lose any energy. It's, it's high octane from the very beginning. He's got a lot of dancing. Yep. So it's funny to see him off the piano that early in the show. Sort of does the opening riff, and then he's gone. I'm trying to think if I've seen footage from the 52nd Street or Stormfront tours. Is this the first time around where he's grabbing the wireless mic? As far as I've seen. I think this is the first visual that I've seen of him doing that in his career. And boy, does it allow him to just go crazy. And this is exactly what I mean when I say those embryonic moves. You see him almost trying this stuff out. And a lot of these, because he's, he's not a great dancer, but he's energetic. And that, that really makes it right. work, the fact that he's just all over the place. And you see some of these moves get smoothed out and a little more confident by the time we get to live from Long Island. There was also a moment where he almost doesn't get the mic back on the stand, if you notice that. When he goes back up to the piano, it's like split-second oh, timing. Yeah. I, I noticed that the wireless cut out for a brief second right at the beginning of the song as well. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And I had to imagine that wireless mics weren't that common back then. Because even if you look at Live from Long Island, when Billy's up doing, you know, you may be right, when he's working the mic stand, it's a corded mic. But when he's doing like Big Shot and Only the Good Die Young, he's using a wireless there. I don't think they were that common back then. I, I think, you know, the technology has gotten so much better over the years that, you know, the quality is great. But I, I think it took a little while for them to become so common place so that leads us almost right into moving out we have two little things that happen first one is he messes around on the moog for a second and i love that kind of thing because once we get to live from long island everything's so streamlined there's no moment where he's testing anything out or you hear any like noodling in between that and he gives a middle finger full of what can only be described as gusto and he calls it yes. here's the iranian salute and just flips off the whole crowd for seemingly no good goddamn reason. Like to uh start the show off this evening by giving the Iranian salute. This part of the show, it's totally uncut, so there's no context leading up to it. He just goes right into it out of, seemingly out of nowhere. I noticed um, Lib's still on what looks like the Turnstile era drums. I noticed that too with the uh, no bottom head still. He's using Tama by this point though. Mm -hmm. I think 52nd Street is when he switched. I know on Turnstiles he was using some other gear, um, but it was around 52nd Street where he finally signed up with Tama for the first time. Mm. One thing I noticed too, the count off in the moving out. Like that to me was my first like live from Long Island memory. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's got that same count in. Just the cadence of it is, is already there. And the moat comes into play here because he uses it to harmonize with Richie. Obviously on the album it's two horns, and since they don't have two horns, it's Richie and then the synthesizer, which I really like. I like that sound. I did too. Yeah. That's what it's all Just like the intro, the ending of Moving Out had a very live from Long Island vibe. 
they really had that ending dialed in. So after the end of moving out, Billy goes up to the mic and uh, just mentions, We don't have a new album out or anything. We're just here to play. But uh, we do have a couple of new songs uh, we've been working on. We'll do a couple of them. Uh, but this isn't one of them. Now, here's another interesting set choice, in my opinion. You're two songs in, and you go to Honesty. So you bring it way, way down, at least from, from these two powerhouses. And what's funny is that he brings his energy down during the banter. Like, he goes from yeah. flipping off the crowd, going into moving out, till you can hear his voice just sort of calming down as he gets into Honesty. And it makes going into Honesty less jarring as a result. He really glides into it that way. I like this version. I like the organ on it a lot. This is the first instance in this show where I said, wow, he's in great voice. His voice is just spectacular in this show. And it really stretches, too. And this is a song that is hard to make work in a big room like this. It's really easy for the intimacy of the lyric and the music, the sparseness of the arrangement, to get lost in a big coliseum like this. And it works really well here. So he picks things up there, essentially follows the album sequence, goes right from Honesty into My Life. At the beginning of My Life, he plays I Don't Know What It Is. Do you know what he's playing there? here that I couldn't quite place it, but I've heard it. Yeah, almost like a Rhapsody in Blue sort of thing. And this brings up another point, another motif in this concert that we don't see in Live from Long Island or CW Post is by the end of this concert, you realize he's not noodling around. A lot of these things feel very assured. He's not just letting his fingers fly across the piano. He seems to have come up with these little interstitial melodic ideas or song quotes, things like that, because he plays them very assuredly and he ends, he usually has a very solid ending to them. Even once or twice when the band kind of comes in on the Oompa Loompa sort of jug band riff they have going on, (laughs) even though they sort of fall into it and fall out of it, it feels like, not that it was necessarily planned, but they've clearly been doing it a bunch of times. Like, this isn't the first time they've done that. I also find it funny on my life that, you know, we all know Lib hated playing that sort of disco beat to this song. Yeah. And he seems to get his revenge with Phil in the audience, no less. He plays his weird offbeat on the bass drum going into the song. I thought that was a nice touch, just to make it a little less straight for a minute, yeah. you know? I didn't realize that pretty much the entire lifespan of my life, they've done some sort of intro as they go into the song. You know, most of the other songs, it's just right into the song yeah. like you expect. My life, they never, ever do it. That's true. That always had something on it. It's even there on Live from Long Island, but they just cut it off the video. That's why it's a weird start. I like this version. It's got more bite than the album. This is where I, I also noticed the camera really focuses either on Billy, Lib, or Russell. You don't see a lot of Doug in this. You also don't get a good sense of the stage. For a Live from Long Island, and I'm going to conjecture based on when we talked to Bradshaw Lee, they had a crane 
and they had a, a camera up high and so they could get the whole stage at once. I think in this case they didn't have that and as a result it feels a little disjointed. You really never see the whole band. You don't get those moments like Doug walking up to Lib and hanging out for a minute. You get some interaction but you never get that whole ensemble feel here. I think what was it, one or two cameras placed right in front of the stage kind of pointing in mm -hmm. and maybe a couple on the periphery. It's not an elaborate camera setup by right. any stretch of the word. So there's a lot less camera angle and movement that they've got to work with. And so I'm going to put my theory about this here before we get into the next song. Because I mentioned CW Post, the other one I forgot to mention was Live in Connecticut, which was also pro shot and released even though it's out of print. I almost think that Billy saw it and didn't like it. I think there were a few things wrong with it. I think he maybe realized, perhaps, that the stage show wasn't ready to be videotaped. It didn't quite look right. Yeah. It was in a transitional point. It's also possible, I mean, if I was looking at that, I'd be like, I don't like the way this is shot. It feels lonely. Right. The fact that later on, too, they keep these static shots. He's like, he's got a towel after every single song. And you know that happens, but you don't see that in the other videos. You don't see that in Live from Long Island. You don't even see that in Last Play at Shea, which, as we discussed, is a very intimate, almost behind-the-scenes direction. Those moments sort of let the energy dip, and I bet you that the energy did not dip at the concert, but it feels like it did because of lack of good editing here. Now, perhaps this was a rough, and the guy would be, you know, maybe whoever was editing it would have been like, shit, man, I would have fixed it on the second shot, you know, but this is, who knows, right. you know. But that's what you start noticing. My conjecture is that they were kind of auditioning these new songs, which is a weird thing to think about because, you know, it's not like they had anything else in the hopper and the album was mm -hmm. only coming out a few months after. But I think this was the prototype for Live from Long Island. He said, this needs to develop more before we do this. As we get through it, there'll be a lot of spots that we mentioned where it really is setting the tone for how things developed uh, the rest of Glass Houses tour. And really the, the other major tour after that was Nylon Curtain. Now you had Live from Long Island, but these shows were kind of an anomaly. Some of them were part of the Glass Houses tour. Some of them were these small club shows that they booked specifically to recut these songs. There's only one full-fledged tour between these dates and Live from Long Island. Now we're five songs in. And we get into Piano Man again, er, you know, early in the set. And uh, I love where it sits here. Uh, it sounds great here. And this is the first song where I notice the crowd reacting right at the beginning when he's playing those opening notes. I mean, you know, it's coming because he's putting the harmonica on, which and this is another point where we just watch him on camera for 10, 20 seconds fiddling with the harness. Like, number one, there's no roadie. Number two, you didn't cut this. Like, they clearly right. cut the noodling at the beginning because there's a cut in the video, but they left that in. I do like that he does Oh Susanna for a moment on the harmonica. That was fun. And maybe I've given this a good break listening to it. I don't think I've heard Piano Man in quite a few months, if not longer, but I really like this version. I've certainly gotten tired of the studio version having heard it 20 million times and played it at every Billy Joel tribute that I played. So we're like, oh God, here we go. We go you, a couple months in, you already feel like Billy, like I gotta do this one again. But this era here between 77 and 82, Piano Man was sounding really good. It just, it had a pop to it. Yeah. And it had a little more of a, a drive to it than typically. And yeah, it just sits really well. And Bill, Billy sounds great. Like you mentioned, he's in such fine vocal form. 
he really opens up on this song, which in recent years he doesn't do quite so much anymore. I also enjoyed Richie on the accordion like an actual accordion. You could tell the difference. It sounded great. That was a great touch. I, I like in the 90s how they had T-Bone Walk. He played accordion, so he would bust it out. But I wish, you know, Dave Rosenthal or Crystal or Mark, someone would learn it and bring it out for like Vienna, some of these songs. I think it would be an amazing touch. And this is another example of Richie playing everything. He plays keyboards, organ, which is a little different from piano, saxophone, obviously, and accordion. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was always known as the sax player, but gosh, what a utility player. I mean, you talk about how much uh, value a utility player has in on a baseball team. Same goes in a band. Th- these guys can cover so much real estate with their dexterity and flexibility with all these different instruments that they can hop between. Now we get into the first quote-unquote audition song of the night, and this is all for Lena. And Billy boos away from the piano here. And ventures over. Scampers. Scampers to the CP-80. He does, yeah. It's not a meander, it's a scamper. And the CP-80, otherwise known as the Glass House's keyboard. Sounding a little Elvis Costello-ish on this one, especially on the spoken coda at the end of it. Seems very uh, Mm -hmm. Armed Forces era uh, Costello there. This is the first time you see all three string players, so to speak, up front. You see David, Russell, and Doug. It was nice to have the bass really high in the mix. Since it's a new song, Billy explains a bit what it's about going into it. This is a, this is one of those new songs I was telling you about. This is a, it's about a guy who's driving himself crazy over a woman. And the woman's name is uh, Lena. This is called All for Lena. says it's about a guy who's driving himself crazy over a woman yeah and the woman's name is lena as if that, that's gonna mean something oh it's lena right and right we, exactly and it's, yeah. it's funny too because we know now that it was originally funny papers and this is also our first uh, lost guitar solo we'll say david brown takes a very different solo on this yeah in place of the organ solo which ended up on the not well it's is it not an organ i think it's a farfisa it is no, a farfisa no it's yeah. not i'm sorry it's not because you see it in the video but it's not the Moog either. Remember we went through this. I can't remember when we did it. <laughs> I think that all got edited out, but Michael and I were on Google for 10 minutes trying to figure out what freaking keyboard he has in the video for All for Elena. I think we landed on yeah. something. It was a Yamaha, I think. But David Brown is playing a guitar solo in place of that keyboard. What I love about this performance of Lena, a couple things. One is I notice how the band plays through the stop and come to find out that's also how it was recorded. The um, stop of the band 
was edited. So on the actual original studio recording, they played straight through it, Mm -hmm. but they decided for effect to chop out the band in that spot. And I love, love, love Billy's vocal riffing on the end. Yeah. I don't want to say goodbye. Why does she got to make me cry? I mean, it's not the most brilliant (laughs) lyrics in the world. But I just love the riffing of the melody against the chorus groove. Well, they're well rendered. The lines are well done. They fit so perfectly. And it's not overdone. He just throws out a couple and gets on with his life, so to speak. Unlike the character. So my note for the next song is what a firecracker of a show this must be when angry young man isn't the high point in terms of energy. It sounds great. Yeah. But when he goes into it, it's almost a step down from everything that's been happening. It's at least even keel. You would think this is the one that ratchets up a tick, but it's not. It's just there in a good way. You can see why it ended up getting moved early into the show as an opener in the the years to follow because that opening piano is just a great opener. What I loved on this, though, is that Richie doing some fantastic backing vocals in the verses. I didn't even catch that. You're right. And he's also the one doing harmonica here. He's playing the harmonica. Russell would go on to play it after Richie left the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's uh, Richie playing harmonica on this tune. We'll mark up another instrument then for Richie on this concert. Another thing I noticed, which I wish Billy would go back to, the cool thing of having the Moog next to him. Oh, yeah. Billy's playing the solo. That goes to LeBolt by the time you get to Long Island. Yep. Yeah, I always love that. And I don't think Dave LeBolt used a Moog. I'm pretty sure he had. He just patched a different synthesizer for it. And to me, it never sounds quite the same. Now, New York State of Mind, this is an interesting one because I think we've both discussed that it's never really our favorite. And yet it is one that occasionally on on these bootlegs, we find versions that we enjoy. CW Post was a good example. And this one's pretty jazzed up. It's pretty bluesy. And what's funny is that the intro seems to go through three stylistic shifts before Billy settles on this version of the song. The CW Post one's pretty gonzo, all things considered. Kind of rip it to shreds there. And this one, it seems like he might do it, but then he goes into a nice torch version of it. And his vocals had a very Ray Charlesy affectation to it this time around. You know what I really want to hear? I want to hear a good, intimate, piano and vocal only version of this song. I really be interested in hearing that if anybody knows diana crawl please put a bug in her ear i think that's the way to go i noticed going into this sax solo here billy goes speak to me rico (laughs) we wouldn't know that as his nickname until glass houses came out yeah but that was clearly already a nickname they had for him speak to me rico
Next is one of my favorite album cuts. I just love every live performance I find of this, mm-hmm. and that's The Stranger. And I tell you what, Billy does not get credit for being such a good whistler. It's not easy, especially that high note in there. Oh, oh my goodness. And just the tone, and the t- it's just so full. It's every time I hear it, it's just goosebumps. I like the guitar being a little higher in the mix. Once again, there is that transition piece. There's some extra drama, drumming on it. And this is a song I wish would have stayed in set lists more regularly than it did. He does not play this one a lot in concert. I really wonder why. It's a fan favorite. Yeah. Maybe it just doesn't translate all the time. Maybe it's one of those when it's locked in, it's incredible. But if it's just a hair out, clunky. So after the Assured Stranger, we get a new audition piece. Now we get Sometimes a Fantasy. And this one gets an immediate reaction. For a song they don't know, it hits hard enough in the intro that it amps up the audience immediately. Yeah, and he says, This is a, another one of those new songs. Uh, this song is about uh, about one of those heavy breathing kind of phone calls you might have heard about. And so someone must have shouted to him, When's the album coming out? You don't hear it, uh-huh. but he reacts. Because he's like, When's it coming out? I don't know. February, March, something like that, I hope. This is called uh, Sometimes a Fantasy. It's got some crazy moves on this one. And sometimes he looks stiff, but this time he, he seems pretty loose, movement-wise. My big takeaway from this, how evident it is how much these guys are loving playing the new material live. The other songs sound fantastic, but mm-hmm. when they're getting into Lena and Fantasy and these new songs, they just kind of flip a switch and you can just feel the excitement, like the newness of it. They're just having so much fun. We also get another alternate solo here. David Brown takes the guitar solo, which would become a keyboard solo on the album. And this is an example of what I mean when I say that he's just taking a damn good solo, but it's not really composed because it doesn't have that sort of breakdown feel that we get on the album where it lives kind of on the crashes and that goes right along with what's happening on the keyboards and you get that drop at the end of it. He just rips a good one, yeah. you know, all the way through that section. Where I'd be willing to bet if you saw them two nights later, you'd get a different solo. I love seeing Billy and David play off each other near the end there. And you don't see a lot of interaction between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So that was fun to see. Yeah, this is the first interaction you see between the two of them on this video, at least. We go from a brand new song to a deep cut, Root Beer Rag. This transition felt a little more jarring to me. It kind of made Root Beer Rag almost feel like an artifact. Like, sometimes the fantasy feels so new and fresh that going into Root Beer Rag, it it almost kind of snapped you out of it for a second (laughs) because it just felt so different than what came before. This is one where I really appreciate good editing because this video didn't have good editing. It just wasn't much to look at. However, I have been watching a lot of Marx Brothers lately. And so I decided there's a there's some Chico Marx moments going on here. The goofiness almost of the song, how fast he's playing, he's mugging a little. Reminded yeah. me of what happened on the beach in Bali Bali in, I think that was a night at the opera. Where he's shooting the keys and he's really mugging. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, 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 yeah. Do, do. Oh, I love that. But the, yeah, it's fun. It just, the edit just doesn't capture the energy of it. You know, this song would get dropped from set list pretty shortly after this too. So it didn't survive his standard set list long after that. Now this was a song they would play frequently prior. It was in a lot of set lists, but as Glass Houses and later Nylon Curtain rolled out, and I would even argue that 
songs in the attic started introducing some more songs into the set list that he wasn't playing much as well but yeah root beer rag kind of went bye-bye after this i don't think it translates well in a coliseum or an arena it's a good theater song i mean it's ultimately a barroom song but you're right yeah once you get past the theater theater is probably the last good place for it right if not a saloon and going out of root beer rag we bring it down a little bit yeah. for she's always a woman Decent version. Guitars up in the mix. Yep. We have a flute from Richie. Chalk yep. up another one for him. This block of songs feels like it was just oddly sequenced to me. Yeah, it's a ballad and then it's two songs that we now know are album cuts. Who knows? Maybe back then more people knew the next two, Stiletto and Zanzibar. It's a good version, but I have to say I actually prefer the Last Play at Shea rendition. And as you mentioned, the next one on the list is Stiletto. And prior to it, Liberty uh, shares his beer with Billy. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what that was exactly. I want to know what exactly was in that. Because uh, was it a bottle or a glass? It was a, a bottle. Yeah, that was that was a funny little moment. That was also one of those few interaction moments that we get in this video. There's another towel. He's once again wiping himself off. He's a sweaty piano man. <laughs> yeah. And we bring out some of the road crew on this one to do the finger snaps. I wonder how many of these guys were still on for the Innocent Man and Glass Houses tours that were doing the, uh, the clapping. Right. <laughs> Yeah, five guys doing the snaps on this. I counted. That, yep. That's why we're here, people. We pause and we count and we say, oh, there's five roadies snapping on Stiletto in that's Houston, right. 1979. This is a fun version. There's nothing revelatory here, and that's fine, because we don't get a lot of live versions of this. David and Richie have some nice interaction going on throughout it. This is probably the closest we get to a Liberty DeVito drum solo. It just kind of riffs a little oh, yeah. towards the end there, and you're like, oh, man, you know? And that makes me think... I kind of want to hear that too. I want to hear my intimate version of New York State of Mind, and I want to hear riffing out of lib at the end of Stiletto from now on. When the Lords go back on tour, like, uh, I'm going to have yes. a sign that's going to make no sense. Lib, if you don't mind, can you please play some fills at the end of Stiletto? I'll never fit it on a placard. It's never going to work. The second album cut from 52nd Street here is Zanzibar. We've referred to this when we were talking about the bridge tour, when Zanzibar made a, a resurgence in the set lists. And we weren't sure who was taking the solos on it. We looked this one up for reference because this is really the only other live one that you really find out there. And this is the really scampering one. This is where he just makes a point of darting all the way across the stage during the interlude chords before the what's a flugelhorn solo on the album. And he plays it on an organ. But the organ is like all the way across the stage. Now the second solo is Richie. So it's very possible that Richie could handle both of them, but mm -hmm. as what seems to be an act of showmanship, Billy makes it there with seconds to spare. Takes yeah. the David Gilmore approach, which is play the opening of the solo that everyone knows and then just go off from there. With the craziest look on his face. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a weird he almost looks bored and or angry and it's tough to tell. And he's doing like this head tilt thing. Yeah. Where like it's just very straight. It's so bizarre. I wonder if he was trying to hear the monitor because he had just gotten over there. Maybe his ears had to adjust or something. Maybe. Maybe. You know, I have to say, though, there is a video on YouTube recently where somebody slowed down on vinyl, slowed down Freddie Hubbard's solo there. And I highly recommend checking that out because if you're one of those people that just thinks jazz is a bunch of fast notes that make no sense, or if you especially think that about bop, like Charlie Parker kind of stuff, um, yeah. when you listen to that slowed down, you hear like it's just 
warp speed melodies, but they're really good melodies. They just go by so fast, and it's all improvised. Wow. It's really important to remember that he's making this stuff up on the fly. But it sounds like something right. off Kind of Blue when he slows it down, because now it's at a, it's at a yeah. ballad tempo, and you're like, wow, man, those are some fully formed ideas coming out. And, you know, Billy's not a jazz player, so Billy doesn't quite pull that off. <laughs> Although it is to be fair now that uh, the solo in Zanzibar on the record is edited from a couple different takes or from a couple different parts. But those guys can do it. Freddie Hubbard can do it. You know, <laughs> there's no oh, doubt yeah. about that. On this, I love Doug's bass. Yeah, Doug plays some good bass on this. So here we go after Zanzibar into the band introduction. And the uh, the 70s is an interesting time because he he's not referring to them as the band. He refers to them as the orchestra. And at some point it flips to being the band. Right. The orchestra to me feels a little old timey. It does, but it, it really speaks to the fact that it wasn't just a rock band. You know, there was right. a lot of deft arrangement going on. The fact that Richie is an orchestra unto himself in this concert. <laughs> I'd like to introduce the uh, different members of the orchestra here on the drums, uh, Liberty DeVito. On electric and acoustic guitar, Russell Jabbers. On electric and acoustic guitar, David Brown. On Fender bass guitar, Doug Stegmeyer. On saxophones and keyboards, Rich Kanata. He also lets it out to Phil Ramones in the audience. This is when we realize that. He mentions Phil Zaris. He sets up the third new song of the night. And he mentions... Uh, this is a new song. I'd like to dedicate this to our producer, Phil Ramone, who's out here tonight. came to see us. This is uh, Phil Ramone. You know who he is. Phil Ramone, right. Right, from the Ramones. Uh, this is a song for, uh, if anybody's ever told you you were crazy, um, this is like an answer for him, I guess. This is called, You May Be Right. Yeah, he does. He has a quip for every new song on this one. This is a fun version. It's loose. It's not sloppy, but it's a little loose. When I was listening to this one, I said to myself, you know, this could have been a Skinner song. This could have right. been the sequel to Give Me Two Steps if you gave it to a Southern <laughs> rock band. And you know it's new because somebody practices the riff for a second before they actually start. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, which is really funny. They're just kind of like, okay, yep, got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember it. I know. I played it last week. This is one that stood out to me with the sound like the guitar tones are very glass houses so sonics wise it sounds very similar to the glass house version the southern rock glass houses version and i you know it's worth pointing out too that this is one of the very first if not the first ever live performance of you may be right and here it is already near the end of the set yeah and what's also at the end of the set for some really odd reason is just the way you are how you're going to throw that in the middle of the party block? I don't know. Well, there's not really a party block here. 
I mean, it's Zanzibar, That's true. you may be right, just the way you are, and the closer that we're going to get to. There was no party block. That's true. Yeah. Typically, the energy does stay up. However, by this point, I would argue that just the way you are was his biggest song. It was a huge hit for him in 77 and 78. My thought process is because it was such a big hit, we got to play it near the end. I mean, the audience reaction is huge on this one. I want to know what the odds were on this. Like those backing vocals sounded a little too perfect, even for the Lords. I wonder if that was Richie on a patch. They had those patches back then? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think they could do it, but it just sounded so perfect even production-wise to the album. It made me think that it was right. recorded mm-hmm. or at least sampled. But they didn't really sample back then, right? They didn't have that out yet. No, they weren't really running any kind of samples until Nylon Curtain. I mean, the industry in general, unless you were Keith Emerson. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And now we're coming up to the final song on this video. Now there's a couple songs that allegedly followed that there's not any film or audio evidence of. But for all purposes, this is the last one that's on the recording. And that is Big Shot. Right. And before that, we get some riffing off Liberty, which is the closest he gets to the Purdy Shuffle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the band just falls in with him. Yeah. So here's the funny thing about this. So the Purdy Shuffle, for all you non-drummers, is the beat you hear in Rosanna by Toto. But the big one, if, if nowhere else, it's what John Bonham plays on Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin. And there were other versions. There were other times when people have used it. But I think Fool in the Rain is the one where it's at least most up front in the production. And you can hear that kind of rolling shuffle feel. And when I had the pleasure of interviewing Lib back in, I think, 2015, he spoke about that for a moment. Uh, he said that when he did Big Band on Mulberry Street, like that was his impression of the Purdy Shuffle. But you could see that it was it had that rolling triple feel, although he kept it on the yeah. hat. And so it's funny to me that he comes closer on this than he does on Big Man on Mulberry Street. And I tell you what, here with this version of Big Shot, Billy just can command a stage. We're going to talk about the goose stepping? Go for it. Uh, we got to talk about the goose stepping. He throws a Nazi salute and starts goose stepping across the stage. Now, clearly nobody's going to do that today. And clearly back right. then it was in jest. It was tongue in cheek. But in 2021, it's freaking something to see. I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, I mean, I'm not going to get uh, upset about it. Yeah. But it was like, I just kind of like winced a little bit like, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did that just happen? That's like his blazing saddles moment. <laughs> like it's clearly, you know, a uh, he's always spoken of the character in Big Shot in a derogative fashion. The person in Big Shot's not a hero. Whether we think it's supposed to be Bianca Jagger or it's him because he's yelling at himself for going out drinking again. So to make that comparison is not a favorable one. But holy hell is it something to see him do it. It only happens for like a second. He kind of goes back and forth and does it real quick. And I wonder if that was off the cuff. I also wonder if that's why this never came out. I mean, they could obviously could have cut around it, but... Oh, he's also speaking in German, or what sounds like German. There's been a couple crazy verses. What's the one in, um... I think it's Wembley, when he's like, look at those biceps. Look at these biceps. And he's just doing all sorts of weird stuff. That was always like an off-the-chain right. moment for him, I think. Yeah, the Russian version, I remember, is where he's like smacking the microphone against the camera, man. <laughs> you know, against the camera. And yeah. Throwing his sport cord over the lens and spinning around on top of the piano. Yeah. So th- this was his, like, I'm just going to unload here. Yeah, yeah. Whatever energy is left in the tank, here it comes. Right. Funny enough, it's Richie playing piano here. I noticed that. It's like almost like a sleight of hand the way they do it because he gets up and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's clearly playing a baby grand here? 
and I noticed Billy and Richie playing off each other because they're back to back for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And they're like kicking each other from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is where I really mean that it's it's like a sleight of hand is because for most of the song, Richie plays piano so Billy can go up front and do all sorts of politically incorrect things. But then when it comes to the sax solo, Richie can't play piano. So seamlessly, Billy goes back there. He takes over on piano, but they're right next to each other. And what's funny is that it almost looks like that didn't happen every night because Richie kind of looks over a little surprised and then follows suit and kicks him back. And you don't see Richie too animated often. So to see him (laughs) kind of play into it a little bit, that was fun to see. And this is another one I, I caught a little hint of a little pigeon-toed Elvis Costello thing going on there. I mean, obviously, if he's recording Glass Houses, he's thinking a lot about new wave artists. And so I think yeah. that creeps in just a little. I mean, Elvis Costello was the nerd of new wave. You know, he was that one. You know, the talking heads were nerdy, but they were artsy. Well, I mean, Blondie was definitely not nerdy. Um, you would never right. say that. The Ramones were scuzzy, everything else. So if you're going to compare Billy to anyone in that camp, it's going to be Elvis Costello. Yeah, because, you know, Elvis Costello was kind of buttoned up. Yeah. You know, had the jacket and tie, was a little square, but could unload a little bit. The parallel between them makes the most sense. Also had a little trouble with being politically incorrect in the late 70s. I think a lot of people had trouble with that back then. Well, yeah, but well, Elvis had the, you know, you know that story, right? Yeah. Yeah. He drops a couple N-bombs in a bar, trying to piss off Stephen Stills. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh boy. So that ends what we see on the video. And you said there's allegedly songs after this. I was not aware of that. Well, according to Setlist FM, there's two more. Scenes from an Italian restaurant and then Get It Right the First Time. I could not imagine him ending with Get It Right the First Time. That's what makes me scratch my head. Scenes I could totally buy because it's just such a big grandiose ending. But Get It Right the First Time is very puzzling. I mean, that's like weekend song on CW Post. Yeah, you know, I wonder if they, if it was just one of those, was that the encore and they just didn't film it? Or or is there something else after that that we don't know? I mean, I don't fault him for not doing it, but I wish, you know, Brian Ruggles has been with Billy the longest. I wish, like, between him and Steve, they kept an archive of all these shows. They did or you wish they did? I wish they did. Do we know that they didn't? No idea one way or the other, yeah. but... If they did, it's not out there. Oh, right. You know, Setlist FM is all fan and audience, you know, community editing. Anyone can go in and be like, oh, wow, he covered Countdown to Extinction. <laughs> Anyone can put anything yeah. in there. But I wish to me they were the two logical people because they've been with him so long. But I wish there was a good archive of all these shows. Well, at any rate, get it right the first time or not. That brings us to the end of the recording of this concert. And now, of course, we want to hear from you. Like we said, this is a pretty popular bootleg in the Billy Joel canon. Curious to see what you guys all think of this one. Do you see it as a transitional point? Do you see it as a solidified, I remember that's what he sounded like in 79? Do you see it like we do as sort of that ascension into the 80s? And of course, you know, was anyone there? Did he really end with Get It Right the first time? We want to know. If any of you were at any of these shows in November 79, I'd love to hear your experiences and what it was like hearing some new songs that weren't out yet. I I don't know that there's too many instances where Billy was pulling out songs before the albums came out because the tours for the albums typically came a little bit after they came out. So this is a very unique situation in this aspect. Reach out to us on email, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com or find us on all your socials, your Facebook, your Twitter, and your Instagram. TikTok and Snapchat forthcoming, not really. 
But if you just search Glass Houses Billy Joel podcast on any of those platforms, you'll find us there. Yeah. And if you've got a couple quick minutes and haven't done so already, if you want to leave us a five-star rating or positive review on Apple Podcasts, it tells the good folks at Apple that we are a quality, legit podcast. And it just helps put us in front of some more people. So if you got a couple of minutes, do a little click-clack and help us out. And if you don't, oh, well, you can't see, but I just gave you all the Iranian salute. Don't take any shit from anybody, especially Jack. <laughs> you can take a little shit. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Hey!